Mark 13, verse 32. Let me remind you about, uh, about the, the mystery of prophecy. And this, this is Jesus speaking in Mark 13, 32. Uh, if I can get there. Open it up in Luke. Y'all already reading it, right? Yeah, that's good. That's all right. Mark 13, 32. Jesus says this, but concerning that day or that hour. What's he referring to there? The, the, the second coming of Christ, right? Obviously, because he's the one talking, so he's already come the first time. So that, that should be obvious. So, Kevin, I'm not going to ding you off for not saying second to start with. Um, so the second coming, when he comes again, and he says this. This is what's incredible to me. No one knows about that hour. No one knows. Not even the angels. Okay, now listen to this one in heaven. Nor the Son, but only the Father. That is so mysterious to me because in that statement, Jesus has somehow, and I think it's based on his role and his submission, surrender to the Father in the Godhead, just part of how they relate to one another. And I think obviously the Holy Spirit's not mentioned there, but because of the no one but the Father, I think by nature the Holy Spirit's also referred to there, um, or just by absent, but he doesn't know either. And so only the Heavenly Father knows when Jesus is going to return. And I think there's a sense where Jesus is sitting on the throne uh, or in, in heaven beside the, the, our Heavenly Father on edge is today the day. Is today the day. And we need to remember that when it comes to matters of the end time. Because I think there's this tendency for us to think, oh, we can study and we can determine through numbers, studies, and all these signs and, and things that we can figure that day out. And I remember several years ago, I don't remember the exact year, but I remember there was a, a friend of ours and more of an acquaintance that shut his business down because he was convinced that the return of the Lord was coming. And I was like, that's a very, very big assumption. And guess what? The Lord didn't come, and he had to find a new place to reopen his business and go through a whole bunch of stuff. And that's a shame. And it's embarrassing and those kind of things. And, and I don't think that we're, anyone's going to predict that because the Lord himself knows. So what is, that means for us is when we come to a parable like the parable of the ten virgins or ten maidens in Matthew 25 that deals specifically with some prophetic things about the end time, we don't need to think that there is going to be this moment that we're going to be able to magically predict we just need to understand that the principles in this parable and, and ones like it and apply those accurately in, in principle format so that we are ready. And, and I'm going to confess to you, this is one of the most convicting things about the way I per perceive my own life. Um, when when I, I look at the future, I plan. Katie and I plan. We got a, uh, our, <laughs> I'm so excited. We have our 25th anniversary this year. We just celebrated uh, on Valentine's Day 26 years of dating. That was awesome. And because our first date was on Valentine's Day. So 26 years. We got a 25th anniversary plan for the end of April, 1st of May. But here's the thing. What if the Lord returns before then? Can I, can I be really confessional? I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't in one sense. And that's awful to say, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not going to get struck by lightning. I'm just telling the truth. If I was lying to you, then I'd maybe need to be struck by lightning. My point is, I think we get so caught up in the day-to-day -day routine of living in our own plans that we don't live prepared. 
like these parables teach us to be. And, and I love, especially, uh, I have some Reformed brothers and sisters that will use this kind of language. I'll see you providentially or Lord willing. And, and, and that helps me. It reminds me that today is a gift from God, and I don't know when he's going to return, uh, when Christ is going to return the second time, and I need to be prepared. And so as we read this parable, I think it's a, a warning for both us as believers and how we're prioritizing our life, and I think it's also a warning for uh, unbelievers who don't have a relationship with Christ and need to be prepared. But there's a third group that I think it gives us a warning to, and this is the most serious of all. I think it's a warning to those that think that they know Christ and act like it for all practical purposes, but they really don't. And, and, and there's this guise, pretense of religiosity that they uh, subscribe to that hampers and hinders and confuses everything they do. And we've got to get to a point where we say, I'm holding up the mirror of my readiness, my preparedness, my priorities, and, and deci- discerning how am I really doing in a relationship with Christ. Because if it's not right and we're just pretending, that is the most dangerous place to be. So let's look at uh, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. So turn over there in your Bibles, and hopefully you had that marked. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no, no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oils with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Actually, let me reread that. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Wow. It's sobering, isn't it? You, you, if, if you've been over this parable, you get a lot of the, the information or the, the, the point of this really quickly. But I want us to go over and make sure that we all land together on this because I think it's an important biblical principle for us to get. And so I want to begin, just like I've begun every one of these uh, messages on the, the parables uh, through Parable Living Series, with the key elements and just focus in on these. And I'm not going to give you all of these at the front, but I want to give you a few. First of all, we see this bridegroom come. Okay, and who is the bridegroom? We know it's Jesus. There's no other bridegroom, and in every parable, that's going to be who that that represents. And and Jesus here is one that makes some some ultimate decisions about the the wedding feast as it as it comes about. And so I think he's both speaking as himself in one sense, but also in the bridegroom in, in the parable sense uh, towards the end of this. There's also, and I don't know if you caught this, the kingdom of heaven. This one's a, a little bit interesting. If you look back um, at, at verse 1 of, of chapter 25, it says the kingdom of heaven will be like. 
Now, I think that's an interesting thing to think about because the kingdom of heaven, even though there's, there's a sense that uh, it's, it's a heavenly place and the kingdom there in this other spiritual realm, there's a sense also that the kingdom of heaven is here and now because Christ inaugurated his kingdom and it's being carried out here and now. Even we as the, the bride, the church, we are carrying forth the kingdom of heaven and its principles. And so when, when Jesus begins this parable saying that the kingdom of heaven will be like, we need to understand that there's some different distinctives about this. And so, and I want to make this as simple as I can. So if I think about the values of the kingdom of heaven versus the values of something else, the values of the kingdom of heaven are about eternal matters. Things that, that look to the, the future and define us about purity and devotion and the, the divine rule. And when I think about the other side of that or what's not the kingdom of heaven, I think it means this. It, it's the contrast, which is the rule of man, right? And, and, and so what does the rule of man look like? Inconsistent. It's, what did you say? Chaotic. Yeah. It's not just inconsistent, but you take it the further extreme, and it ends up being chaotic. I can't hear you. Okay, yeah, so relative and not absolute. Yeah, it, 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 if I'm looking at the standards of mankind, I'm going, hey, what do I believe is right? I could elevate that because that's a standard rule of man, not the objective truth of God that is eternal and always truthful. My standards change. Have you all ever changed your mind? None of you all are raising your hands. Thank you, Josiah. Josiah is with me. Perry, give that boy some candy later today, okay? Yes, Josiah's like, yes. Hey, we'll set that up, man. What do you want next week? Come to me before the message, and if you're with me, I'll, I'll call that out instead of just candy, okay? So if it's like steak dinner, we're there, man, okay? Is that fair? Okay. <laughs> I, I may need some later, though, okay? You may, like, have to cut some in half and bring me some leftovers or something. So we'll, we'll, we'll okay, two thumbs up. So the, the rule of man, though, is, is chaotic. It's objective. We change our mind. God is a God who never changes his mind. His truth is always truth. So the kingdom of heaven brings these truths in order, and it sets things for us in a way that, that gives us the best. But, but for us, it's constantly changing. Even in light of the things that happened this week, this, this just pops into my head. Um, Friday, I, I got to do, um, uh, in the morning, uh, youth mental health first aid stuff, the Project AWARE. And uh, especially after Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday's events in Florida with uh, the, the shooting. I keep thinking about the signs over and over that were present in the life of Nicholas Cruz that gave warning. And, and more, more people are up in arms about gun laws than the people that didn't heed the warning. That, that's the sense that I got. I heard more rants against Trump and those things. And I'm not getting into the politics of that this morning. But, but what's so uh, amazing to me is, and, and this is where the youth mental health first aid stuff comes in, is we are people that give care to teens and students around us. And if we're seeing the signs, we need to understand those things. And so objective truth, and here's my point, we want objective truth coming down from the present. It's not ever going to be objective. It's always going to be subjective, and people respond to that because that's the rule of man. We need the rule of God to come in and say, how do we operate rightly with people? You get that? 
operating rightly with people, bearing one another's burdens, uh, going to, to, to stand in the gap and being people that care about one another. Those are the reality of, uh, and the objective standards that God gives us on how we ought to operate. The kingdom of heaven, heaven operates very differently than the, the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus is setting this, this parable up with that perspective, saying there's a far better way for us to approach things, and we've got to look at this, and that's a key to the whole parable. Because I think so many times we want to apply our own standards and come back and go, well, yeah, that's the rule of God, but he's a God of grace. He's God of mercy, and so he'll just be kind to us. No, folks. There is a point where he is also God of justice, and his wrath will be poured out on those uh, who do not receive Christ. And, and that's going to be a, a very, very tragic, depressing, sad moment for some folks. But the kingdom of heaven, being this setup, is Jesus saying there is a defined truth about this parable that we need to land on. Does that make sense? Are y'all getting that with me? Okay, I see some head nods. Good. So, so that that's the um, second thing. Did this thing crash? I thought I had gone through these. Um, there's also the ten virgins. Okay, and, and obviously these play a, a part. And, there, and if you notice in the, the text, it says that there's five wise or five foolish and five wise. So why the number 10? I, I think, how many of y'all have ever done biblical numerology stuff? Okay, a few of you, very few of you. Okay, well, let me give you a couple things. Why 10, um, at, at least as far as I, uh, my studies produced. 10, you got the 10 commandments. It, it kind of deals with the number of completion. That's the idea. Because the Ten Commandments is the, the, the number of laws that describe how we can rightly be convicted of sin and, and the, uh, and the um, Jews were to relate to the Lord rightly. Okay? You also had the Ten Plagues. There was a number of completion that God gave the, the uh, Egyptians, Pharaoh in particular, the opportunity to repent and let the Israelites go. After that number of completion, he was done dealing with Pharaoh and he moved the, the uh, Israelites out with the last plague. Okay, so you get that? Here's, here's another um, interesting one. Uh, there were ten generations to Noah. I, I, I'd forgotten about that. But there's this sense of completion, and after the generations of Noah, the Lord did a new work in, in uh, revitalizing the earth through Noah's line. Okay? There's also this. This is really, really interesting to me, especially in, in light of this uh, parable. Two things. Ten people that were Jewish could comprise a new synagogue. So if there were 10 of us that gathered in an area and, as, and were Jews, we could establish a new synagogue. Pretty interesting. It took 10 people, and this is where it comes into this parable, to be witnesses to a wedding. It, a wedding would not be considered official unless there were 10 attendants. So I think in all of this, Jesus is saying here is the completion of, of this picture that is a, about the end of time when I'm going to return a second time. And this, com this moment, why is that popping like that, Billy? So I've, I've had problems with the fit lately. So if it keeps doing it, well, we may check out on another mic. Um, so, uh, hey, y'all, hey, let, me, let me just say this. Obviously, there's some weird little distractions going on today. Somebody needs to hear this message, okay? So, so try to dismiss those things, tune past them into to this stuff. And that may just be for me to make sure I concentrate on what I, the Lord wants me to, to teach this morning. So these, these ten, uh, these number of ten in this, this wedding, it is about completion. And the Lord's saying, here's the end time. It's complete. And this picture is about the completeness of all of God's plan it, from salvation to the, uh, the, the glorification process of humanity. And so he's saying this is the, the, the whole package. 
if you will. It's going to come to fruition, and you need to be ready. So here's, this is a really important part of this parable. And before I started studying this, um, there were terms that I knew in, in regards to the, this stuff, but this will help you understand a lot more of the flow and especially what happens in the parable. In Eastern weddings, there were three stages to the wedding, okay? First of all, you would have had the um, engagement. What would have happened is the two dads would have likely met and they would have said, hey, on behalf of my son and, and or my daughter, I, we're meeting and we're arranging this marriage. The couple themselves would not have met at that point. And so they may have spent a year or so engaged. There's, there's no telling how long that could have been. It could have been multiple years. Then at a point they come and they, are, they experience the betrothal. And so what the betrothal actually entails is them standing before each other and they're actually making their vows to one another. And so it's, it's actually at that point that there is this marriage that occurs in, in the, the modern terms for us. And then that betrothal could have lasted as long as a year. Sometimes it could have been as short as a couple weeks, um, but it, it, it would have varied. After the betrothal, what would have happened, though, is they would have entered into this wedding celebration, this third phase. And so at the wedding celebration, what would happen is the bride would be at her home and she would have attendants attending to her. They would have a, a specific spot set up for the wedding feast that would have happened most likely late in the evening. And the, the uh, attendants and the bridegroom would have been making arrangements to get the, the wedding party itself to the wedding feast celebration. And so why you have these ten virgins here in the parable, they're part of the wedding celebration that they're going to be uh, taking their lamps and lighting the path that the couple would have followed uh, uh, to the wedding feast celebration. And so they're an important part of this role. But you can see they didn't know how long it might take for the bride to be uh, uh, claimed and gone through the town and gotten to the point where they would have been. So they're falling asleep. Does, does that all of a sudden the analogy makes sense, right, to where we are, why they would have been drowsy, why they would have fallen asleep, and they're waiting on the, the bridegroom and the bride to come through the, the, the wedding reception to the ultimate feast. And so here's what happens. These virgins are sitting there, and they've got their lamps and their, their oil, and they fall asleep, and the bridegroom comes. Here comes the bridegroom. And by nature, the bride is with him. But he's the one who's celebrating because he's the one who initiates this. And so, ultimately, they're celebrating, and th when they hear this call, they have to go, oh, we got to light our lamps. Now, um, so in this, and I want to hit this really quickly, and we're going to unpack it a little bit more, but there's a conclusion of the parable. And this is where, to me, at this point, even though we're going to hit it later, I, I want to make this point really clear. Five wise virgins are ready. They do what when they hear the call? Here comes the bridegroom. They trim their lamps, they add oil, and they light them, and they are able to have those lamps lit for the endurance of the, the procession and through the wedding feast. The five foolish, they may have had some oil, but it obviously wasn't enough. They asked for the uh, five wise uh, virgins to share with them. They didn't get any. They went back to some vendor to get the oil, and by the time they came back, the wedding feast had begun, and they were not allowed to enter in. That is sobering because that shows that there are people who have that pretense of knowing the Lord that are pure, that, that have religiosity. They, they look like believers. They may even act like believers in some ways. But the truth is there's something distinct about them that has kept them 
from being allowed to be in the wedding feast. And that, that is this. They truly don't know the grace of God. They've not been saved. And the longer we, I uh, especially do ministry, and the, the, the uh, elders and I talk, we know this, and it's sobering, but we're concerned that in a church, even a church like ours, there are people here who claim Christ and say that they have Christ in their hearts and their lives, but the truth is they don't. They don't. And it's going to be this rude awakening. And, and let me say this about the five wise brides. And actually, we'll, let me hold off on that. So um, let's, let's look at the ten virgins in, in particular. And I'm going to show you why I think that this is uh, the five wise are believers, true believers, and the five foolish are not believers. So first of all, each possessed a lamp. Isn't that interesting? Now, MacArthur says that the lamp looked like a torch. I, I'm not so sure I necessarily agree with that wholeheartedly, um, and that, that the torch would have had cloth like wrapped around it. Um, I don't understand how, you know, you dip a cloth in oil and then it's oily. Like I think about Indiana Jones where he wraps it around. Do y'all, have y'all watched Indiana Jones down here in the front rows? Whew, I thought, oh no, I just blew the illustration. Um, so you remember when he goes into the, the cave and he wraps around the cloth and he lights it. That's what I envision, okay? But here's what I, I don't get is how do you trim that? Because you know what trimming is? Trimming the, the, the wick is? Well, let me explain that. This, this is why I, I brought this lamp up here. And uh, I'm going to ask Olivia, come up here. because I trust you. I've had you sit behind my back before. Okay? When you look at this lamp, and, and especially the wick, and, and you might be able to see this up here. What do you see about that wick? Black on top. Very good. So if, if I were to, to burn that, here's the idea. I See, I always thought trimming the wick was turning it down. I'm a city boy, okay? That's not it. Trimming the wick, Olivia, and if I were to pull this off and say, hey, I want that to burn really well, you would actually, I say, I need you to trim that wick. You would take scissors and you cut off that charred part because what, if it's already charred, what, ha what happens with it? It's not going to burn as well or light that long, right? Good. But if you give it fresh material to burn, what's it going to do? Now describe what color is that wick below the burnt part? It's red because what color is the oil that I have in here? It's red. Great. You did a great job. Thanks. Y'all give her a round of applause. So when you think about trimming the wick, and, and that was one of the first things they did, each of them had that responsibility, okay? Now here's what's interesting about this too. Each one has a lamp, and I, so I don't know what the lamp really looked like. I don't think it looked like an oil lamp that I have. I don't think it looked like a little clay pot lamp either. That would not put off much light. So I... I I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't research it enough. It's just not that big a deal. But I know this, that it, there's some kind of cloth that would have wicked oil, and they would have been able to light the tip of that cloth, and it would have produced a very bright, beautiful flame that would have lit city streets alight, a, a, a okay? It would have cast a good glow so that they would have known, this is a wedding procession. It's a different kind of light. That's cool. So bystanders would have gone, oh, we know who's getting married, or we want to see who's getting married. And so them trimming that wick was really important. Each one of them had one to deal with. And, and what that says to me is this. Salvation is personal. I, I am not Presbyterian. You guys know that. There's a couple reasons I'm not Presbyterian. One in particular is I don't understand how they hold to infant baptism 
because of how they view the covenant. I get all the theology of it, but here's what I don't understand is, it is my children's salvation is not based on me being a, a believer. And that's what, what they're holding to is that because their children are born into a family of faith, they will become people of faith. And so they go through a baptism saying that they're going to experience grace, and then down the road they go through confirmation. That's to me not about the personal wick and the trimming and all that stuff. It's a personal salvation that we need to experience. And each one of us is accountable for ourselves. I'm not accountable for Katie. She's not accountable for me. I'm not accountable for you, even though I shepherd you. I want to teach you truths. and want to lead you to that point. But I cannot do these things for you. And so here's what's so interesting to me about this, is when you think about the foolish virgin, virgins asking the wise virgins for oil, at first I'm like, man, those wise virgins were kind of rude. Why wouldn't they share some oil with them? But here's the interesting thing. This is why I brought this container up. This is the oil I purchased, okay? This is the ultra-pure paraffin lamp oil. Um, it looks like I got it from Hobby Lobby. So um, somewhere, and, and this is my supply, Okay, as a matter of this week, this lamp was actually empty. And I took this, opened it up, and poured it in. And this is, this is the, the concept here. The grace of God is not something that I can give away. D- does that make sense? I steward it. But I am not the one who manufactures the grace of God for salvation. That comes from the objective supply. That's the importance of the oil. That you have got to go in your own life, in responsibility with the Lord, you're the one who has to pursue His supply of grace for you. And if I pour it out of mine, that's not sufficient. And I think those five wise virgins were not being rude. They were trying to tell them, go take care of your salvation yourself. And the sad thing was, in this parable, Jesus says, you can wait too long. That, that's the conclusion. And I think that there's some of us, and you go, well, how do, how do they have any oil in their lamp? How, how did they think that they were ready? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Turned my hand the wrong way. How, how would any of them have any oil? Here's the idea. You can come into church. You can experience the grace of God. You can worship with us. Man, wasn't worship good this morning? And that can, that can flood your heart with good things. You can hear messages and go, man, that truth is good. But if you don't respond to it personally, and it's not for you directly between you and your relationship with the Lord, it is not enough. It's just the the grace of God that because you're in proximity, it's spilling out a little bit to you. But it doesn't transform you. See, the five wise virgins were transformed by the gospel. That's the picture. Now, let let me give you this, because I think let's... This will be good um, to go over. <coughs> These, uh, what, what distinguishes wisdom? Um, let me give you this, and I'm going to come back to a couple things in my notes. Do you guys remember Proverbs 9, verse 10? It says, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, listen to another proverb about wisdom. I think this is interesting because if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
Think about when it says the fear of the Lord is wisdom, okay? So wisdom would equate with some other things as well. When, he, when the writer of Proverbs says in 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, hatred of evil. You get that? So it's the beginning of wisdom, but it also means it's the hatred of evil. You, you get where I'm going? And then he says this, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So, so the wise virgins were walking in a fear, but they hated evil. They were avoiding pride. They were uh, not being partial in, or perverted in their speech. They were guarding their language. They were honoring the Lord. And, and so it's not just about fear of the Lord in the sense of reverence, but it also becomes very practical in our response. So, so here's one of the things that I, I was thinking. When we act wisely... It, and, and let me go back and say this. When we act wisely, it's not just about knowing things. It's when the Word of God changes our thinking and we align with God. So there's no more longing for evil. There's no more pride in us or arrogance. And we're, we're trying to avoid those things. It changes us to act differently. And here's how it does it. It puts us in motion towards God's perfect end. You may go, well, that's really metaphorical or very, you're trying to be really profound. Let me say, what is God's perfect end? Well, I can tell you this, just going back to the, um, I'm going to call on you, Caitlin, you ready? Man's chief end is what? There you go. If the motive is towards the perfect end, it's glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Isn't that what salvation is about? That, that we would stop being in uh, a, a position with God where we are at ought and we're removed from Him or separated, and instead we are reconciled and transformed and sanctified and redeemed and ultimately glorified. So that what was broken in the fall is now redeemed and realigned with Him in glory. And so when we, our thinking changes and we experience the genuine grace of God, it's not just our thoughts. That thought is borne out in how we act. And, and that action from this parable is this. How are you being wise? You, you get that? So, so let me go back and look at a couple things that I've skipped over because I, I want to make sure we get these. I, I love... John MacArthur says this, he said, they had a form of godliness, the, the foolish virgins, they had a form of godliness but had no spiritual life or power because they did not belong to God. That's, that's quoting a little bit of 2 Timothy 3.5. And I like this, he said, they were committed to Jesus Christ religiously, intellectually, socially, and no doubt emotionally, but they were not committed to him in their hearts. They had not been regenerated by a saving grace. The reality is um, this. I was thinking about this verse. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Because I want you to think about they, they had all the, the, the pretense of being religious, but their hearts were not his. Listen to Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. Paul's dealing with Jews and, and Gentiles and what distinguishes salvation and what, what is really salvation consists of. 
And this is what he says in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value. He's not, he's not saying that circumcision isn't valuable. So the Jews had a valuable ritual in circumcision. He says, and it's valuable if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes an uncircumcision. So he's saying this, the Jews were circumcised, as males were, but if they broke the law, who cares about the circumcision? It doesn't, va- it doesn't matter because it's not really about the outward sign. He says, so if a man is uncircumcised, verse 26, so if a man is, who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? You get what he's saying? You don't have to worry about circumcision. You have to worry about what your heart is. Because if you're uncircumcised and you love the Lord, okay, great. It's not about circumcision. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcised or circumcision outward and physical. Listen to this. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You, you get what Paul's saying? It's a matter of the heart. <laughs> It doesn't matter about physical circumcision. That, that's just a, a sign of something that you believe. But, but what happens, what matters is how your heart responds to truth. And how many of us are in the church today hanging around with godly people, but our hearts are really not circumcised by the, the regenerating power of the work of Christ. And we're going through the motions, but the truth is we're acting just like the, the uh, foolish virgins that we have all the the things lined up, but the truth is there's no oil in the lamp and we don't have access to the true supply. And and we're just going through the motions. And when that day comes, and it may not be the return of Christ, we may not experience that. But you know what? We'll still be accountable when we die. Even even, If I don't see the return of Christ, the chances are I'm going to die. Okay? That's just the truth. I will probably die before then because I don't think I'm going to live thousands of years because I don't think there's any magic well out there of, of life or anything, okay, spring of life or whatever. That is Jesus. So I'm going to be held accountable for what my relationship with Christ looks like. So what happens is at the end, there's this abrupt dismissal that Jesus makes. He's going to say, how did you live in relationship with me? Did you depend upon my grace or did you just have the pretense? And folks, that is sobering. It is sobering. Even for us as believers that we're sitting here going, yeah, Matt, man, that's, that's true. I'm so thankful that I have received Christ. It's still sobering because I would imagine how sad I'm sitting there as one of those five virgins and I have to watch friends that I've been hanging around with, ready to be part of this wedding party, socializing with, and I've got to go, no, you didn't come. All of a sudden, it's in this awareness. Why had they not talked to them about that before? Why had they not said, go, you're not ready, go. And I know I'm stretching that parable a little bit, but, but that's part of that too, I think. That we need to be looking around saying, who, is, who has a pretense? And not judging them, but encouraging them to go back and consider carefully how they're rightly walking with the Lord. Because if, they, if we don't do that, who will? Who will? 
And our lives ought to be so set in the standard of walking in godliness that they recognize that there's something distinct about us, and they go, man, there is a distinctness to those people that I don't have even though I claim Christ. I want that, and, and i got to go get that right. And they begin to ask questions because I think this abrupt dismissal is going to catch so many people unaware. And I'm, I'm going to go to this scripture, and I don't, I don't like gloom and doom stuff, but I'm, this is truth. Jesus says the road to heaven is what kind of road? Narrow. But the path to destruction is what? Broad, wide. It's what he says. We need to be careful in our living to make sure that we are on that narrow road. We need to be careful with people that are on the broad road telling them, encouraging them, get off of that because there's a better path. And it's sobering. I get it. I get it. So let me ask you a couple things practically in conclusion. When you think about your day-to-day life and routine, how precious is the grace of God to you? Because I could give you these. If I had lit this thing for the, the whole message or sermon time today, I'd have bet you know, this would have burned up. And that grace that I need is going to be depleted. And I've got to continue to go back to the source of grace. Not to y'all. Honestly, not to y'all. I hope y'all steward it, steward it with me. Okay, and go, hey, Matt, we want to help you with grace because we're commanded to do that. But Jesus alone is the source. And we got to, as believers, go back to him and be filled up consistently. It's called devotion life. It's called not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. But we meet and encourage one another regularly. It's that we speak uh, the scriptures to one another, that we worship in psalms and spiritual hymns. Is, is that we're constantly ministering to one another. Th- those are the things that help us steward that rightly and be constantly filled. But if we deplete, if we run, and we don't do that well, we will limit up. We will be limited. And you could burn this wick. I mean, you can see how long this thing is. It goes way up. And I could keep burning that, but guess what? Eventually, it's going to be charred to no end because the oil's not there. So we've got to be people that care about our spiritual life well. That's the first thing for us as believers. Then for those who might be here today that are pretending, and maybe you had some kind of experience as a a kid or something, but you know what? I had one. Some of you have heard my, my testimony. As a fifth grader, I said I knew who Jesus was. I knew it mentally. I was not convicted about sin. There was no ongoing dependency upon Christ for my, uh, daily, as my daily bread or for the living water. Everything that I did in spiritual terms was for me to look good. It was pride and it was arrogance. And I actually had a, a, a pastor challenge me when I was interviewing him, uh, with him. As I, was, I guess I was about 28, 29. Actually, it may have been older than that. So he actually challenged me and said, I think you were probably saved then. I was like, 
dude, I, there's no way. I know my pride. I know my arrogance. I know how I pursued sin. All that stuff was just mental. And here's the scary thing to me. Even the demons know who Jesus is, but they're not saved. There's no transformation in them. And they, we can pretend to be religious, but that pretense will leave us separated. I want to encourage you, please, please, if it's a matter of pretense in your life today, I get it. I get it. Don't walk 10 years of your life like I did in pretense. It will be dissatisfying. It will leave you lacking. It will be eternally damning. And that's a harsh word, I know, but that's the truth. It will leave you eternally separated from God, experiencing his wrath that Christ has already taken upon himself for you. So repent. Agree with God about your sin and come in and, and address that rightly so that you grow in dependence upon his grace every day. <coughs> Lastly, I want to ask you this. How are you acting? I want you to think about that word that I use, motive. How are you acting out your faith every day? Are you seeing the world through the lenses of Christ? People. So, so that you're ministering to them to take them the gospel. We've talked about this over and over this, this year. But I think the Lord has us in a place of, uh, where we are primed as a church, ready to grow and experience people coming to Christ. And that's not going to be dependent on me alone. That's going to be dependent on us collaborating together in grow groups. It's going to be us working together as a church body to reach people with the gospel. Because tr the truth is, folks, the church is losing the battle. If you watch the number of people that are moving into Robertson County and watch all the, the demographic numbers, the church is on decline and all those numbers are on the incline. And, and I could do that for the state of Tennessee and not just saying, oh, it's just transfer growth. They're still going to other churches around. Now, if we look at the nation, not just the state, we as believers are losing the battle. We need to change that desperately. And that comes through us living out our faith as genuine believers and sharing the gospel, making sure people don't get to that point where they are, they are going to be lost forever. But we are firm about our faith and defending uh, our faith for, for Christ's sake and for people's sake, standing in the gap.